0: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
1: If you're enjoying Unwell, you should also check out World Gone Wrong, the new show from the Unwell team. World Gone Wrong is a cozy chat show hosted by best friends Malik and Jamie set in a wildly fictional world. Malik and Jamie were roommates when the world ended. Now, separated by half the country, literal acid rain, werewolves, aliens, and more, they start a chat podcast to stay in touch and work through the increasing uncertainty of their new apocalyptic reality. Each week, Jamie and Malik will tackle topics like, Should I change my office hours to accommodate vampire students? What if the body snatcher that took over my ex is nice? When did the kudzu start humming like that? Malik and Jamie are here to help. World Gone Wrong stars Michael Turrentine, who plays Wes in Unwell, and Hillary Williams, who plays Joey. Learn more at audaciousmachinecreative.com and stay tuned for a trailer at the end of the episode. Listen to World Gone Wrong wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Hello, folks. This is Eleanor. While we are still on our mid-season break, I am here to share one of my favorite fiction shows. Today, we've got the first episode of Greater Boston, an indie, full-cast fiction podcast. It's an alt-universe urban fantasy in which the red Line subway secedes to form an independent city that roams beneath the streets of Boston. Now, I will admit, I first got sucked into this show because I grew up in the real-life Greater Boston area. But I promise this show has something for everybody. It's so delightfully weird, surprisingly moving and satirical. So even if you aren't from Boston and you don't feel deeply seen by the long running Matt Damon jokes in the way that I did, I promise this show has something for you. It features Sasquatch hunters, molasses bombs, pneumatic tubes, wedding disasters, cheese robots, daring rescues, unexplained guinea pigs, and this one guy in the office who insists that you call him extinction event? That's real. All those things are in the show. Greater Boston already has three seasons out for you to binge. And one of the things that I really love about this show is how it builds from a monologue-driven piece to a deeply complex, full-cast, dialogue-driven show. So please give it a try. You can find Greater Boston anywhere you get podcasts. But for now, enjoy this episode.
2: What I love about Boston is that we're such a close-knit little city. Boston's kind of like one of those cities that's like, oh yeah, they have history there, but we're so cute. I think we're a cute city. I don't know how else to say this, but I love being from Boston because it's like, you've heard about me, one. You've heard about us. Everybody hears about Boston. There's something of, like a clean, like an ocean taste to us, I guess. It's like when you eat a clam, it's like we're that clean.
3: Braintree. Arlington. Peabody. Haverhill. Lowell. All right. Fall, Fall River. River. Cambridge.
2: Quincy. I can't see that one without a uh, Arlington. Arlington. Impossible.
4: Framingham. Newton. Lynn. Worcester. Framingham. This, this Framingham. is Waltham. Quincy. Arlington. Waltham. Arlington. Somerville. Arlington. This Revere. is Lemonster. Hey, bro.
3: Somerville,
0: Cambridge.
4: This is. This is.
5: this
0: is this is
4: Greater Boston. This week
5: in Greater Boston, we meet three siblings. Baby brother Dimitri hunts the Sasquatch in part-time cryptozoologists. Middle child Nika rubs shoulders with celebrities in the famous Bobbin Winder, and eldest brother Leon dies on a roller coaster in disaster planning in episode 1, Family
1: Riddles. <laughs>
6: And now, a reading from the Big Book of Riddles by B.B. Bosco. A child was born in Boston, Massachusetts, to parents who were born in Boston, Massachusetts. The child was not a U.S. citizen. How can this be? What occurs once in every minute, twice in every moment, yet never in a thousand years? Which word in the dictionary is always spelled incorrectly? What can travel around the world while staying in a corner? What gets broken without being held? What always murmurs but never talks? Always runs but never walks? Has a bed but never sleeps? Has a mouth but never speaks? What is greater than God? More evil than the devil? The poor have it, the rich need it, and if you eat it, you'll die. What's always coming but never arrives? He who makes it has no use for it. She who buys it has no use for it. He who uses it can neither see nor feel it. What is it? Remember, page 113 has the answers. No peeking!
4: Dear Leon, Let me say it up front, you were right. The Sasquatch is a myth. I know, that's hardly a surprise to you, and honestly, it's less of a surprise to me than you might suspect. My guides in my hunt were a pair of second-generation Sasquatch spotters. A rosy-cheeked husband and wife team, Timothy and Tiffany Ludlow. The Ludlows have spent their entire lives migrating through a circuit of cabins and camps in the wooded northwest, ushered into their lifestyle by their own parents. They were a welcoming pair, self-appointed ambassadors to the Sasquatch Curious, always on the search for potential new initiates. I met them in a camping supply store where I was selecting the items for my camping kit. They were happy to offer their guidance on essential equipment and reliable brands, with further advice about good spots to camp and places to avoid. "'Is this your first time chasing Sasquatch?' Tiffany asked. I had not volunteered that I was seeking the Bigfoot. I'd said nothing about it at all, only speaking of my intention to go camping— to get away from the world for a while, to seek myself in the woods. The Ludlows weren't fooled. They were attuned to their own. They saw Sasquatch in my body language, my tone of voice, the little things I didn't say. I laughed and made no effort to deny my true intentions. I needed their help after all, so why be anything less than forthright? They invited me to join them at their camp, which turned out to be a grand enclave of beards and flannel, A dozen part-time cryptozoologists sharing resources, sharing meals, trading stories of their sightings and near misses, weaving in improbable details and unaccountably poor luck. They reminded me of Nika, these spontaneous storytellers, the way they were all so delighted to have an audience in their midst who hadn't heard their stories before. Do you remember after the hurricane when we were kids, how the power stayed out for days and Nika wove tales for us by candlelight every night before bed? And then the power came back on, and we went back to watching television and playing our cassette tapes. And after three days of that, the power went out again. It only lasted a few minutes that time before Dad discovered that all the fuses were gone, stolen, hidden away in Nika's sock drawer, and Nika extravagantly wondering aloud how they could possibly have gotten there. These men were the same in a way. A bald-headed insurance adjuster told of the time he spotted just the Sasquatch's hand resting on a fallen tree before withdrawing back into the brush. A portly line cook told of the fresh tracks he found in the mud behind his restaurant, leading from tree line to the dumpsters and back again. A diminutive shop class instructor told of the time he and his girlfriend were parked at camp when they were interrupted by an inhuman cry from the darkness. They all talked of how they would leave their day jobs someday, just as soon as they had the evidence they needed the perfect film footage, the complete fossil, the living specimen. One day soon, their faith would prove out, and the world would acknowledge them. I lived with a rotating cast of these characters for the following six months, each of them taking turns as my guides and companions. They each had their pet strategies, their favorite spotting grounds, some favoring treetop lines, some spelunking uncharted caves, some preferring to simply walk the trails and count on serendipity to deliver the beast to their path. Serendipity never delivered. In the six months I spent searching, I never saw the least bit of convincing evidence, much though my companions tried to convince me otherwise. They showed me animal hair and footprints and broken branches, and none of it justified the claims they'd made. None of it resembled the miracles they'd imagined finding. Once, while perched in a treetop blind, I observed the Ludlows, hunting separately, each approach each other from the woods, close enough to see, but not recognize each other, each mistaking their spouse for something remarkable. That night at camp, they corroborated each other's stories. They had seen it in the same place, hadn't they? By the creek, something manlike, lingering in the trees, peering out at them from behind insufficient cover. They each spoke of being watched by something intelligent. They reported the same furtive, careful posture, timid and curious. They described the same eyes, knowing and generous and deserving of love. What else could it be but the Sasquatch? The other cryptozoologists devoured this story, added their own embellishments, how one of them had once found half a footprint in the mud by that same creek, another had picked up the scent of Sasquatch's distinctive musk. They congratulated themselves on this great discovery, this great step forward. They opened beers and box wines and they celebrated. I said nothing of my observations from my own vantage, of how I had seen them discover nothing but their own selves. I knew I was done then, but I said no goodbyes, reluctant to explain my loss of faith, my exit from the congregation. Disillusionment has never been a gift worth sharing. That idea probably makes no sense to you, does it, Leon? The truth had been laid bare, the mystery dispelled. That would have satisfied you. More, that would have relieved you. But I was never there for the Sasquatch, Leon. I was there for the mystery itself. That was what drew me. Had I failed to draw a conclusion, I could have happily stayed in those woods for the remainder of my life. Do you remember that book of riddles we shared as boys? They weren't difficult to solve, especially for you. You saw the logic of them, plucked solutions from the nuances of phrasing like an angler pulling fish from the sea. But they got harder as we got deeper into the book. Took you longer to puzzle out until eventually, they began stumping you entirely. You sat and thought, five minutes... Ten minutes, fixated, but quickly giving into frustration, you snatched the book from me, flipping to the answers at the back, only to find that I'd carefully razored those pages out, tossed them away days earlier. You lost interest instantly, but I continued reading riddles out to you, tormenting you with unresolvable conundrums. I wasn't interested in the answers, only the questions. The riddles I liked best were the ones we couldn't solve. After leaving camp, I hitchhiked to Portland, feeling ready for a few weeks of comfortable living. A hotel bed, a long shower. The hotel was a hotel. The bed was a bed. The water was wet. After four days, I was roaming the streets looking for signs, omens, miracles. I walked down to the pier to see the ocean, those vast alien fathoms. The depths have always comforted me. That's where I met the man who owns a submarine. Dear Leon, by the time you receive this letter, I will already be gone, down beneath the waves in the company of submariners. I will write you again as soon as I can. Until then, I offer you a mystery. How much of our world has been lost to the ocean? What might still be there? With love, Dimitri.
7: Singer Singer. Sewin'Vac in Somerville. Your one-stop shop for all your sewing machine and vacuum repair needs. Isaac Singer invented his sewing machine in 1851. 100 years later, Singer Sewin'Vac opened its doors. That's 100 years of old sewing machines in desperate need of expert repair. Got an antique beauty? Bring her to Singer Sewin'Vac today. Need some sewing help? Check out our popular singing-with-singer sewing classes. Work on your pipes while you pedal and stitch. This week, practice your Irish folk ballads while learning the fine art of the log cabin quilt block. Making your own clothes? If not, then you are missing out on the hot new trend that Improper Bostonian called this year's thriftiest fad in hot couture. Don't cramp your fingers with needle and thread on that new pair of home-crafted designer dungarees. Stop in at Singer So Back for your own vintage singer today. Free extended warranty on all refurbished machines. So what? So whatever you want, that's what. At Singer So Back, 280 Elm Street in Somerville. So you soon!
6: I'd just like to thank everybody again for coming out to the Sunday Cafe Open mic night. Up next, we have Nikas Tomatis a regular at the Sunday Cafe, performing one of her distinctive monologues.
3: Hello, it's good to be here again. Some of you know me already, I certainly know some of you. Hi, Leon. My brother Leon, folks. Stop rolling your eyes, Leon. No, really, he's my biggest supporter, folks. He never misses a show. My name is Nika Stamatis, I'm a Somerville native, and I've decided to be famous. So that's what I'm going to tell you about today. I know it's not exactly a big revelation. I mean, I'm standing up here, right? You don't get many people who get up on stage to tell their stories without some kind of desire for public recognition. I think I've really got a shot, though, and I'll tell you why. Fame is drawn to me. It finds me, brushes up against me. Jumps directly into my path, so I can't help but trip over it. It started early, in a video rental store on Martha's Vineyard, where we were spending a week in a summer house. Not our own summer house, obviously. Belonged to a rich friend of my mom's, an old money molasses magnet she'd gone to high school with. And the summer house had a DVD player, which was very exciting. They weren't exactly new, but they were still too expensive for us to have one at home. So we took a trip to a rental store to rent some videos. While we were there, there was this other guy, a super tall guy, maybe like the tallest guy I'd ever seen, right ahead of us at the register. I stood right next to him, and after he left, my mom was all, Nika, did you see Chevy Chase? And I was like, who? Because I had no idea who that was, since he hadn't even done community yet. Well, someday, you'll remember that you met him, she said, and you'll tell your friends about it. So I guess she was right about that, you know, assuming that I can call you guys my friends. Anyway, I rented Five Ghost West on DVD. Chevy Chase wasn't in that one. So then came a long dry spell. My high school didn't turn out many celebrities, though some of us tried. I played in a band, the Honors. I figured no one gets more famous than bands, right? Well, maybe if we hadn't sucked, but we totally sucked. Uh, I played drums, and the other five guys all work in Olive Garden. And not even the same Olive Garden, they work at like five different Olive Gardens in five different towns, but all in New Jersey. Not to knock them or anything, I mean all I do is fix busted sewing machines. Yes, if I seem familiar to some of you, that's probably where you know me from. The sewing and vacuum shop on Elm Street. I specialize in bobbin winder repairs. Anyway, my junior year, I got a job at Sew Buttons, that upscale thread shop on Newberry Street the same shop, where Matt Damon bought all the thread he used to make his tux for the Oscars the year that I worked there, the one with the blue fiber optic weave that flashed messages about water charities? But anyway, fuck if I ever met him. (laughs) I started out on the sales floor trying to upsell trust fund students from premium cotton thread to artisanal distressed silk, but I'm total crap at sales so I got shuffled into the back to maintain the machines. That's how I first started learning about sewing repair. A few years after that, my brother Leon went to college, only one of us to do that. I never saw college as a step along the path to where I was going. Our baby brother Dimitri practically lived at the library, like he even had one of those special library cards that lets you stay in the library overnight to keep reading. But he never had much patience for formal education. They're too focused on getting the right answers, he always said. Like getting the wrong answer is something to aspire to. But anyway, I visited Leon a couple of times, which brought me to the office of Professor Frakes. Professor Frakes was an English teacher, and sometimes he drank coffee out of his son's head, which was weird. But not that weird, because lots of people drank coffee out of his son's head. His son was Commander William Thomas Riker, first officer on the Enterprise. And they used to make coffee mugs shaped like his head to sell at Newberry Comics, I never really watched Star Trek, that was Dimitri's show, but to someone like me, who just wants to be famous, you can't really beat the prestige of having a mass-produced coffee mug shaped like your head. So Professor Freaks was a pretty big deal in my book. So anyway, this one time, I walked into the office of Professor Freaks and I tell him, Professor Frakes, there's a student open mic, you should come. And he just says, no. And then he scowls at me. The same way he must have scowled at his son when little Jonathan announced that he wanted to grow up to be a TV astronaut. And the longer he scowled, the more famous I knew I would someday be. After high school, I was friends with a guy who was making movies, and he cast me in one of them. And that's how I met Rob Zailovsky. Rob played an evil clown, and I played his captive videographer, and at the end of the movie, the clown beat me with my own camera. Kind of a whole extreme shaky cam thing, until I coughed up a frozen meatball soaked in warm jello. That was supposed to be the special effect, like if enough red sugar water dripped off the meatball, it would look like I had coughed up my guts after the beating. But mostly it still just looked like a meatball. That movie did not make anyone famous. But then, Rob Zyloski was in another movie called The Princess Diaries, and that movie did make somebody famous. Rob played the pizza guy, and a teenaged Anne Hathaway played a princess, and Rob delivered a pizza to teenage Anne Hathaway's love interest. Rob didn't make the pizzas, he just delivered them. That was his dialogue. Because he had this crazy long skinny beard, like this six-inch tentacle of a beard that practically wanted to shake hands when it met you so you wouldn't want to make in your pizza because he might get some beard in it and then he left because he was just the pizza guy but he gave ann hathaway's on-screen boyfriend a pizza and i coughed up that meatball so now that's me and ann hathaway linked at the metaphorical esophagus and that brings me to today here now working at the Sewing and Vacuum Repair here in Davis Square, which isn't all hoity-toity, trust fund glitzy like the place I worked on Newberry Street. But it's been around forever, and everybody knows that if you've got a serious machine in need of serious repair, you bring it to us. Like Like last week, Amanda Palmer brought in the very machine she used to make the bride's gown she wore back in her busking days when she was the living statue in Harvard Square. She handed that sacred machine to me, and she trusted me to fix it. And let me tell you, I repaired the fuck out of Amanda Palmer's bobbin winder. So that's how far I've gotten, and I think I must be close. Thank you.
6: Um, do you know any good riddles?
3: I don't even know what, what do you mean
2: by like, like a little like fancy rhyme here? Like, what are you talking about? A
6: riddle, you know.
2: Yeah, there's one that I can't say. Um, that she saw one by the seashore. Oh man, I always mess it up. What do you call a clairvoyant dwarf who's missing? Okay, what has four legs and then two and then three and then four again? I think she she sells she sells by the seashore.
3: A small, medium, at large. That's the only one I can remember. It's not good, I but.
2: Like it, I like it. <laughs> When you're a baby, you crawl on all fours. And then when you're a man, you have two legs. And then when you're an old man, you have a cane, so three legs. And then back to four, because you're dead? I don't know. She, she sells, she sells, by the sea I feel like I'm repeating it. Like, you know what? Maybe I told it wrong. <laughs> I don't know. It's, I'm
6: a little confused.
2: Um, yeah. You're in a house with no windows and no doors. All you have is a table and a saw. How do you get out of the house? You cut the table in half. You put the two halves together. Two halves make a hole, and you walk through the hole.
5: Leon Stamatis died on a roller coaster at the age of 32. It was not a dramatic death. His car did not detach from the rails. His body did not loose itself from its seat. His death was quiet, unobtrusive. In that way, you could even say that Leon found the kind of death he'd always planned for. He'd had profound misgivings about boarding the ride in the first place. He'd never been an adventurer not like his little brother Dimitri, who had disappeared into the mysterious labyrinth of the world, nor a thrill-seeker like Nika, who grinned wider for every inch the line advanced. It had been Nika who had goaded Leon into coming here in the first place, escorting him via the red line from Porter Square to Park Street, briefly boarding the green line to reach the government Center connection, where they boarded the Stygian Blue Line, which ferried them mercilessly to its terminus. Wonderland. Once there, Nika insisted that the absurdly named roller coaster be their first stop, pulling him by the cuff of his sleeve. She had brought him out here specifically to cheer him up after the end of his most recent relationship. She saw not so much a responsibility as an opportunity to be useful, and Leon felt obliged to indulge her, to allow her that pride of having comforted a loved one in need. So he put on his smile took deep breaths, and shuffled along the crowd-control maze that guided him toward his destiny. He knew he could change his mind. It's not as though he had inscribed this into his schedule. The trip itself, sure, it was right there in his Google Calendar. Post-relationship outing with Nika. Destination, Wonderland. But nothing committing to the roller coaster. Certainly not some rickety monster called, good lord, Whirladon? And if it wasn't on his schedule, then he didn't have to do it. He reminded himself with every step. As he approached the polo shirted teen with the child measuring rod, he reminded himself. As he stepped off the platform into the third car from the front, he reminded himself. But when the shoulder cage descended over his head, he realized he was too late. The appointment was confirmed. He didn't even mind so much that his relationship had fallen apart. He was more concerned about the precarious state of his job. He'd found the relationship stressful. Luisa expecting outings on a moment's notice, to movies, to dance clubs, all the way to the North End for Florentine Cannoli at Mike's Pastry. It wouldn't have been so bad if only she had planned ahead, given him a month's warning, or maybe two. Heck, he liked North End where the streets were permanently tacky from the Great Molasses Flood. So you had to slow down your step just a little, or the sidewalks would pull your shoes right off. But Louisa sprang things on him. Cooking classes, and dinner reservations, and IMAX showings of documentaries about Antarctica. It was too much. The operator released the cars, and Leon was jerked forward. He laughed once, the way a condemned man laughs when he doesn't quite believe what's coming. Nika misunderstood, gave him a nod and a grin. As the car rose, Leon began planning. He would keep his hands and arms inside the car, of course. He would not give up his one means of anchoring himself should the safety harness fail. There weren't any good handholds. Holding the harness itself wouldn't help. If the harness detached, he'd just have a good grip on it as they flew off into the atmosphere together. But there wasn't even a lap bar, since the five-point harness was expected to suffice. Leon was not so trusting. He understood the need to be proactive, to ensure his own security. That was why he'd begun job hunting, despite having a job in which he'd been content for ten years. The publishing industry was shrinking. He had survived the first round of layoffs but he needed to be ready for the second. The cars clacked, dragged forward by the chain through the ratcheting mechanism of the side rails. He understood that this was a safety system, an assurance that the cars could never fall backwards, simultaneously snapping the necks of every passenger on the train. Understanding made the sound no less ominous. Up they clacked, up and up, And up, he couldn't believe how far up, how long they ascended, whole lifetimes passing while Nika bounced in the seat beside him. He had never been good at anticipation. There was no joy in it for him, only the dread of uncertainty, the panic of surprise. As a child, he had refused to open his own Christmas presents. Insisting that Nika and Dmitri do it for him while he waited in the next room with his eyes closed. His siblings reported back to him dutifully, carefully detailing what they had found, most significant presents first, so as to ease the greatest anxieties, then continuing in order of diminishing value to end in the familiar safety of socks and number two pencils. Only once he knew every item had assuaged all lingering mystery, would he dare to set eyes on the totems of affection his family had chosen for him? He discovered that if he stretched his arms far enough, he could hook his fingers under the bottom of the seat itself. The metal was filthy and unpolished in this unseen space. It cut into his fingers. He calculated dates to reassure himself that his tetanus inoculations were current. They were. So that was one less thing at least was not among the uncertainties. Leon could bear no uncertainty. He was the sort who would gladly accept knowledge of the exact time and cause of his death, given the opportunity. He wouldn't even try to change that fate. The knowing would be enough, more than enough, better than avoiding it only to land back in the limbo of uncertainty. He'd even applied for a position at an astrology magazine, Not because he believed in astrology, which he did not, but simply because he respected the art's goal, the complete elimination of the unknown. A life without surprises, without the unexpected, without unanticipated terrors. However much about the world changed, superstition would always be a constant, perhaps all the more so in times of upheaval. Just look at Dimitri, run off into the woods in search of implausible creatures or Nika hanging her hopes on chance encounters with famous strangers. Yes, astrology was a counterintuitively solid post to which Leon could tie his ship. He thought about all of that during the interminable rise along the track, but soon enough all that time was reduced to a mere blip, the end come much too soon, as Leon saw the passengers in the head car raise their hands in the air just before disappearing over the zenith of the track, followed by the second car, And then there he was, at the peak, looking out over the edge at a 200-foot vertical drop, followed by an array of twists and loops. He tried to make the calculations, to consider how best to turn his body, or shift his weight, or anchor his hands, but he knew it was hopeless. Whatever was going to happen would happen far too fast for any of his careful preparations to mean anything at all. Either his little pod would drive itself into the ground with crushing force, or it wouldn't. It would fly free of its rails. Or it wouldn't. It would kill him. Or it wouldn't. There was no solution to this puzzle, save to wait and hope. And now here was Nika tossing her hands in the air with no concerns at all. Leon just couldn't do it. He took one look from atop that rickety wave of track, that dizzying array of speed and surprise, and embraced the greatest certainty he could muster. He muttered a single word, nope, then preemptively expired, willfully exited the world without feeling even the first breeze of descent.
6: Greater Boston is written and produced by Alexander Danner and Jeff Andreessen with recording and technical assistance from Mark Harmon. In order of appearance, this episode featured James Johnson as Dimitris Stamatis, Kelly McKeon as nika Stamatis, and brayden Lamb as the voice of Leon Stamatis. Also featuring Alexander Danner as the narrator and the singer Pitchman, and Jeff Andreessen as bb Bosco. Interview clips gathered from Greater Boston residents. Charlie on the MTA and the Tosa waltz performed by Emily Peterson and Dirk tv Additional music and sound effects used from the public domain. Episode transcripts will be posted online at greaterbostonshow.com. If you enjoy Greater Boston, please consider donating to our Patreon campaign and help spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes or social media. Greater Boston is written in part at the Writers' Room of Boston, a nonprofit workspace for Boston area writers. Find out more at writersroomofboston.org.
2: I have one sibling. We don't get along too well, and he likes football. And the strangest thing is um, he always comes into my room to steal my deodorant. I don't know why. He has his own. Is yours better? I guess, yeah. We, it's kind of the same brand, but different flavors.
0: The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish.
1: Hello, hello, I'm Malik. I'm Jamie. And this is World Gone Wrong, where we discuss the unprecedented times we're living through.
0: Can your manager still schedule you for night shifts after that werewolf bit you?
1: My ex-boyfriend was replaced by an alien body snatcher, but I think I like him better now. Who is this dude showing up in everyone's old pictures? My friend says the sewer alligators are reading maps now.
0: When did the kutsu start making that humming sound?
1: We are just your normal millennial roommates processing our feelings about a chaotic world in front of some microphones. World Gone Wrong, a new fiction podcast from Audacious Machine Creative, creators of Unwell, a Midwestern gothic mystery. Learn more at audaciousmachinecreative.com.
0: Find World Gone Wrong in all the regular places you find podcasts.
1: I love you so much. I mean, you could like up the energy a little bit. You could up the energy. I actually don't take notes.
3: Ah. (laughs) That was good.
1: I'm just kidding. You sounded great.
3: So did you. (laughs)